I remember very distinctly what that metal felt like still under my fingertips and thinking about, you know, saying to myself, like, don't forget this because this is the country you actually live in. Like, this is its exact contours. Is this what happened here? You know, this attempt to enforce not the law, but to to punish even the attempt to speak out. My name is Jordan Kistner, and this is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers about experiences that completely turned them upside down, disoriented them in their lives, changed them, and changed how and why they wanted to write. Hi, everybody. Jordan here, jumping in to note that this conversation that we're about to air between me and the brilliant Alexander Chi was recorded in mid-February. So you're going to notice a conspicuous absence of references to COVID-19 and the coronavirus and the devastating outbreak that has completely overtaken our world. Life looks pretty different now than it did when Alex and I talked. I had a completely different intro written and recorded for this episode, and I am re-recording it now from my bedroom, which is not normally how this goes. But from my bedroom, I wish to say to you that actually I think this conversation, as I have been reflecting on it in the last week and a couple weeks before that, this conversation feels more salient to me now, even than it did in February Alex's story is about something that happened during a different epidemic, the AIDS epidemic, and about the realization that you maybe live in a city or a country or a world that is less safe or less kind or less good than you had previously believed. And beyond that, it's a conversation about how you figure out how to keep living anyway and how you move forward and what you do in response to that realization, in response to the brutality of the world. And I won't spoil that, but I will say as a hint that Alex arrived to our interview fresh off a night of karaoke with friends. And so with that, I will wish all of you health and safety to you and your loved ones, and also maybe some music and some dancing. Hello, I am Alexander Chi, author most recently of the essay collection How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. I'm a professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College, and I'm someone known for his long pauses. It's okay, me too. We're just going to have a lot of empty space in this interview, because I do that also. I don't know that it was exactly my first protest as a member of the of ACT UP, but it was my first police riot. And actually, it really changed my life pretty profoundly because afterwards I had PTSD related to the side of the police, uh, for example. The reason I was involved in ACT UP, for those of you who don't know what ACT UP is, ACT UP is uh, a direct action political organization protest organization uh, devoted to bringing uh, change, meaningful change around the way that HIV and people with HIV and AIDS are treated uh, by 
public, the government, healthcare system. Uh, at the time in San Francisco, we were trying very hard to uh, to get the FDA to approve more drugs for research released to the public. And their rationale at the time was driven a lot by their relationship to the drug companies, which, you know, the drug companies' relationship to the problem was, oh, not enough people are affected by this disease for it to be affordable for us to to test drugs and to try to find a cure. So it was a really puzzling kind of thing at a baseline level to look at this disease that was so deadly and to be told, <laughs> sorry, not enough people are dying from it for us to try to help you more than we are. And and so that was what we were trying to do. We were trying to change awareness. You know, I had I had arrived over the summer. I had gotten involved with the organization pretty much immediately. I had been to a couple of protests in in the suburbs where we would go to the like the drug company headquarters and protest there, picket there. Uh, this was supposed to be a march that we were that we were organizing. Uh, and it was supposed to be more major. And we had a police liaison, for example. We had engaged in a certain amount of civil disobedience training for those who didn't have it. And, you know, we were trying to be prepared so that as we were entering the protest, we could both abide by what the police had set as the parameters for us and also do what we felt we had the right to do. Part of our plan was to block traffic uh, for a certain amount of time and just to see, you know, we knew that people would get arrested. We weren't sure how long we would be able to block the traffic. And, And so that was kind of the plan for the day, if you will. It started... Uh, downtown near the Civic Center area and went uh, to the Castro, which was a, at the time it was a route that we knew also from like the gay pride parade. And the, the way that we had gone about it, uh, it seemed like a pretty ordinary protest of its kind, except until it got underway when the police arrested our police liaison for stepping off the sidewalk, for example. And they did something that was pretty common at the time in their mistreatment of activists, AIDS activists, which was that they denied him his medication under the idea that it was drugs. He was one of our most like kind and gentle people also, which makes it even more... Not that anyone, not that there's a reason for any re, any any way that you get treated in the end, but it just made it more stark somehow to all of us who learned of this later. You know, we we began the protest as I describe in the essay, and and that was when, it, as people were getting arrested, we saw that they had blocked off the traffic in a certain way, but also they had blocked off the street traffic and they seemed to be, it was interesting because we were trying to 
you know, one of the things that you do when you block traffic is you try to essentially like draw attention, everyone's attention to what's happening, like a no more business as usual kind of scenario. And in some ways, by doing what they did, they kind of made the whole thing much bigger than we were able to make it on our own, <laughs> uh, involving like more people, uh, involving the people who were in the restaurants and theaters and the, on the on the Muni arriving, and like all these all these things were magnified by it. I think the thing that really startled me was just uh, the intense violence, and it began with them attacking first this this guy who was on a motorcycle who was stuck on the block that they had uh, cuddled off. And then as people were chanting, what are the charges, the police seemed to choose this woman who was in the front and they grabbed her by the hair and threw her down on the ground. And then that was when chaos uh, really started with people just starting to run, trying to get away from what was happening. I don't know. I don't know what to say, except that when they were saying that when the cops were, they were using the expression martial law, they were claiming that they had declared martial law to the people in the, in the sidewalk and to the people in the restaurants. I, I asked one of the cops, I said, doesn't the president declare that? Like, and they just, they wouldn't answer me. It's something also that I first told the story of it that night to a news crew as I was standing next to an ambulance in the Castro of San Francisco and my friend had been uh, attacked by the police. They had knocked a newspaper stand over onto his legs so he couldn't move and then they had uh, clubbed him in the head and he was bleeding pretty heavily and so I had stayed with him to make sure nobody trampled him any further. And that's when the, eventually, you know, we were surrounded by other activists and, and then the police came or rather the ambulance attendants came and, and took him to get medical care. But at the time, the, the ambulance attendants, the EMT said to me, uh, you have to keep your hand on the ambulance or the police will arrest you and take you away. <laughs> so I am standing there essentially with my hand on the ambulance looking around just feeling like what the hell just happened to us you know and they're inside with him I can't see what's happening I can sort of hear him uh, and this news crew comes up to me as I'm standing there like that and they're like, excuse me would you could you say a few words about what you just saw you know and and I did You know, I think of it as a threshold because I I had always sort of, I'd never been treated that way in person like that. I had never had a, a kind of intensely inimical experience of that kind. I'd had lots of you know, the police in my hometown growing up were pretty like small town kind of cops. 
but I had never been pulled over by the Portland cops, you know, and I think I, I was always aware that I could get in trouble, you know, quote unquote, but I wasn't ever treated like that until, until this police riot. And so, you know, I, the, the thing that I would say about it afterwards is that I just felt like I wasn't sure why I lived in the U.S., that everything that people were talking about in terms of the rights we were all supposed to share, all that kind of thing just seemed like utter bullshit. Because none of those cops, so far as I know, lost their jobs. And some of them may even still be on the force. (laughs) You know, if not a lot of them. Many of them were young. Many of them were about my age. I guess they might be ready to retire to their pension. Or they might be a chief now. How did you move through that feeling of, I don't know why I live here. This is not, this is a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Or did you move through it? You know, did it, did you just stay in it and change inside it? I guess I have just been living inside of it. I still think like that. I still don't know why I live here. Um, I just bought a house. I, last night, a friend of mine was saying, I just don't, I, I think this is why I haven't bought a house. She was talking about the election. And I thought, oh, I guess I'm not going to tell you that I just bought a house. On the one hand, I feel like I want to live my life. I'm exhausted by the way in which I've spent so much of my existence fighting off this right-wing takeover of the United States that's been happening kind of in waves it informs all of my thinking. I did at the time, I I took a trip to other countries, actually, after that. How to, soon after? Um, a year later, I planned it. I I had some money and I I knew that I could do this kind of a trip if I wanted to and it seemed important to. I had friends who were leaving the U.S. already for political reasons at the time. Uh, I had a friend who had moved to Germany because she was so disturbed by gun violence in the United States in the 80s. And and I remember her very clearly saying to me, I just like not worrying about whether or not I'm going to get shot. And that was part of why I went to see her, you know, in Germany to see what her life was like. I went to London also and to Edinburgh, Scotland. Those were some other cities that I had marked out as possible places to go. And I thought about it pretty hard and and then decided to stay. And then I think over time, I I still regret it. I still feel like I've just... It's a lot to spend your life on something like this struggle... And to see, like, you know, to go from, to go from trying to raise awareness about, like, 6,000 dead from AIDS in San Francisco to, like, millions dead worldwide. You know, we have many drugs now because we have many people who have the illness now. So it actually is profitable for these companies to research 
drugs. We still don't have a cure, as many people have pointed out. You know, sometimes people talk about uh, the old days of the epidemic as if the epidemic is over, but if anything, the epidemic has become a franchise, you know, in some way. It's it's weird because it all feels so stupid and, and the result just so incredibly squalid. <laughs> like that was the other thing. Like I was looking at the results of the 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 sort of uh, immediate fallout of this week's impeachment trial and Trump claiming that he's been acquitted. And it's, yeah, it just feels disgusting. Can we go back to... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's beautiful. No, I just that was like so exactly the end of a thought that I hmm. I want to take the opportunity to go back and ask yes. you about the end of the day. I mean, I remember we went to someone's house to watch the news to see what was reported, which was a lot of what we did back then. Was we would do these actions, then we would try to see like how did the news carry it. Sometimes. It would be carried sometimes, it would not be carried. But I, I'm pretty sure we all went out dancing afterwards, which was this, like, sounds, it may sound crazy, except, you know, that that's part of how we got through was to just find find yourself on the dance floor, let it all out on the dance floor, you know. So there was there was a lot of dancing to get through that time. And I think, you know, even I was thinking about this last night when I did karaoke with my friends, karaoke is a part of how I get through <laughs> this time. Um, why do all this if you can't go sing and dance with your friends? Yeah. You know? Joy. Yeah. Did you feel even then, even on that day, like something had changed for you. Oh, yeah. You. you sort of write it that you wrote it that way in the essay, like that moment with your hand on the ambulance was. Right. I think as I was, I remember very distinctly what that metal felt like still under my fingertips saying to myself, like, don't forget this because this is the country you actually live in. Like this is its exact contours. Is this, what happened here, you know, this attempt to enforce not the law, but to to punish even the attempt to speak out, you know, arresting the police liaison for stepping off a sidewalk. You know, that's not that's not something that's aimed at keeping anybody safe. You know, uh, that's an attempt to quash political resistance. I want to formulate some question for you about how this has shaped your relationship to writing. But um, a lot of the questions, I'm th ways of, I'm thinking of phrasing that sound dumb because the way it's shaped your writing feels very clear. It's something you write about. It's something that seems to be to show up in your work all over the place. Yeah, I think, you know, something that we talked about a lot back then were, was uh, how do you how can you protest in such a way that you're not getting arrested? You're not putting yourself in police custody. You're not 
being a part of what the right complains about, where they they point to like the cost of a protest, you know, you know, the police overtime, you know, they accuse you of wasting taxpayer money. And so there was a certain amount of that also like the the way that the police treated people once they had them in custody varied wildly around gender, race, uh, and HIV status. Um, so it wasn't equally safe for all of us to participate in nonviolent protests and getting arrested. So writing seemed like, you know, the obvious choice. I was on the media committee. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel like I still am in some ways. Uh, like it's all just one long extension. It's a, I'm not Barbara Kruger, but like her work informed my work just as, you know, the new narrative writers in San Francisco at the time that I was there also informed how I think about the ways in which writing my life into literature is its own disruption of the kind of larger literary historical practices and projects that are ongoing. And now you teach and now younger I, writers how to do that too. Yes. Yes. You're bringing exactly. more people onto the media committee. It's, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of, it's all just media committee. <laughs> <laughs> all the way down. Thresholds is a production of LitHub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. And special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. See you next week.